Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 312 on the network. It's part of a triple header Thursday today. Toe the Rubber first. We have a man on second following this, and then we have Cots Corner hitting in the three hole today. So before we bring Jim on and get going, we've got a stacked show for you today. Just want to thank our 51,000 plus subscribers, grassroots MLB front offices, 74 countries. Thanks for your support. Keep following us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, and now most recently iHeartRadio. After the show, give Jim five stars. Give him a great write-up. You can ask questions on there, make comments, whatever you want, but help us battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball. Let iHeartRadio know they made the right choice bringing this podcast network as a part of their, their stacked lineup as well. So with that, Jim Rooney, welcome back to your show. Hello, Dave. How are you today? Doing great. I know you got a lot of exciting things going on in your world. Last week we had a great chat with uh, with Vinny Perez about the uh, potential of a new a new uh, almost like a Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for arm injuries up there in or pre- arm injury prevention up there in pitching up in the Northeast. And um, real excited for you there. And we've got a great uh, follow up to that show today. I know there's a when to start pitching, and, th- and there's some kinetic chain exercises we're going to get to. Yes. Uh- when I was looking back at last week's podcast and our conversation with Vinny, he uh, he made a couple of points that was in, that developed into a natural lead into going to some deeper explanation of some of the exercise and the, and the throwing protocols that uh, are beneficial for young players. Um, as we've done in the past, uh, we had a conversation about you know when should my son or daughter start pitching. And what was interesting, one of the first things that Vinny spoke of is when he sees the different people coming into his office, that as he stated, uh, there's a lot of skinny, underdeveloped kids in my office, which means those are the individuals that are getting injured. Uh, He talked later on about uh, not a lot of big, strong, naturally uh, muscular individuals seem to be in my office. It's all the underdeveloped kids and the younger guys. So that goes hand in hand to what we've spoke of in the past about skeletal age and muscular maturation. Um, now, when he when he talks about skinny kids, is he talking about he's referring to younger, younger kids in that preteen years? <clears throat> yes, yes, but when we when we went into future conversation, I mean, there's still guys that are out there that you know maybe 16, 17 years old and and haven't really hit their growth spurt as far as uh, you know, the natural process of, uh, of getting stronger. Um, a lot of this, um, which we'll discuss today, there's a, there's an extreme importance in the progression of how we acquire this strength. You know, those classic stories of scouts or coaches and people in development saying, Hey, we get this kid strong and he's going to be awesome. But then they jump right into it and they go about it in the incorrect, uh, fashion as far as the timing and progression and the, and the choice of exercise. Um, a lot of that has to do with his, his final point is, um, was he's talked about the differences in training protocols and actually playing the game, the baseball in the different age groups and how, um, as we've stated before, how, you know, a 10 year old is not supposed to train like 42 year old Roger Clements. I mean, it it seems logical and seems obvious that that's not what would happen. But uh, 
I mean, there's many a times that I've walked into a baseball complex, whether currently uh, watching and, and coaching a little bit my, my son, or in the past uh, as a national scouting supervisor, I, I can remember walking into a municipal complex in Atlanta one Saturday morning. And there was a high school game that I was going to see in the back of the complex. And as I walked through this complex, there was a lot of little league um, games going on, trainings, practices. And and uh, I'm seeing 10 and 11-year-olds doing cross-symmetry work, which is an advanced training technique that combines, you know, scapular stability and uh, your external, internal rotators in your shoulder. And some of these guys were so undeveloped, you know, their prime movers weren't even working properly to know how to hinge or bend down and pick up a box, let alone why are we focusing on all the advanced training mechanisms when the basic um, close chain kinetic movements hadn't even been introduced to that individual. So it's because of stories like that, that's the basis of, of this podcast today. Um, and listening to Vinny last week, one, you know, we, we did state at the end that one of the greatest things in having a conversation with him, it's, uh, I related to, it's like watching slow motion videos. Sometimes the video is awesome. It helps you see some things that maybe you've might've overlooked in, in real time. Um, but how it works to the most benefit benefit of clients or young ball players is that it's a confirmation of what you've been doing with them. It's not the end result. Uh, and Vinny, in much of his discussion last week, talked about you know starting out and how important it is to learn proper movement patterns and how to move efficiently uh, before we start selling out velocity and doing a lot of things in, which would be considered like power development. Um, As I remember him stating, precision first, get it right, and then your body will tell you when it's time to move faster in that regard. Correct, correct. Um, so we've spoken about it in the past. We went into some details with Vinny. But I want to reiterate the importance of closed chain kinetic exercise at the at the start of uh, most young ball players' training protocols. Now, you can ask, what is closed chain kinetic exercises? You know, anybody can Google that. I'm sure it's going to come up with a lot of definitions, a lot of different answers. For me, just understand it's your feet on the ground and you place yourself in an athletic position and you start doing the movements, um, body weight movements, kettlebell, dumbbell, barbell, everything that concerns developing the force and the movement against the resistance. If we're using resistance with your feet on the ground. So an example of a isolation exercise would be, sitting in a machine and doing a leg extension uh, or a leg curl, um, sitting in a machine and doing a shoulder press. Whereas if you stood up and instead of just doing a regular shoulder press, 
you did what's called a push press and you bent your knees a little bit and you developed force right through the floor up to the dumbbell or the barbell or the kettlebell you're pushing, it becomes much more beneficial in teaching the young player's body how to move in an efficient uh, pattern based upon how they're put together or how their skeletal age is or how their maturation process is. Um, one of the one of the first times I came across this uh, was when I um, I was working in a physical therapy clinic in Scarsdale, uh, New York, in Westchester County, while I was coaching at Pace University. And while I was at Pace, I was the pitching coach and the strength coach, strength and conditioning coach for the baseball program. And through this physical therapy practice, I heard about a uh, physical therapist probably about 20 minutes away from Scarsdale over in Rybrook. I believe it was Rybrook, Rybrook, uh, Mamaroneck area. And his father was an Olympic weightlifter, heavyweight champion Olympic weightlifter for the Soviet Union. Uh, many times gold medal winner in the Olympics. And stories started coming out because at the time, I don't even know if I had heard the word closed chain kinetic exercise. You know, maybe we just used the compound movement to describe a squat or a, or, a, or a press or a pull. And one of the stories I heard about him was that um, there was a cross-country female runner at Manhattan College, and she was running in, I don't believe it was Central Park, but she was running in some park uh, in New York City, and then she had to run across the street to get back to where her apartment was, or possibly back to the school, the university, and she was hit by a car. So as a freshman, she was an all-American cross-country runner. That was the summer of her freshman year. Uh, after her freshman year, she gets hit by a car. The orthopedic surgeons and the original doctors that looked at her, you know, basically it was like a jigsaw puzzle. Her, her injuries were extensive to put her legs and hips back together. They told her she'd probably always walk with a limp. She'd never be able to run again. She'd probably have to have uh, knee and hip replacements way before um, her old age. And the the thought process was basically her cross-country career was over. Well, I don't know how she found this therapist, uh, this Russian therapist, but he started using closed-chain kinetic exercises, bodyweight squats, even if it was in a limited range, from day one. So I found that very interesting because in working in the other um, physical therapy office, the office I worked in was pretty well known for its success in uh, ACL uh, recovery from ACL surgery in the knee. And I can remember the whole process. They first came in and did uh, flexion and extension of the foot. Uh, they did work for the for the calf muscles and the soleus muscle in the lower leg. 
put you up into a Cybex machine with a special attachment to do extension and flexion of the knee, but with a brace that holds the tibia in place so you're not working on the ACL. And a lot of the whole initial first couple of months in that program was what I would call isolation exercises um, in, a, in a seated or lying position. A lot of straight leg, uh, ankle weight type activities, stuff like that. Um, you know, front, side, back, etc. So I was pr- pretty intrigued. Like, how could this guy be taking this um, young lady, who not only had multiple fractures in both legs, but uh, ligament damage in both knees and the whole course? That's why the, I guess the diagnosis or the prognosis was so was so dim. Long story short, by the time she was a junior at Manhattan College, she was back to being an all-American cross-country runner. So, you know, obviously you can say miracles do exist, but one that was a tremendous amount of hard work put in by that young woman. And it made me really start to think about what this guy was doing. So I started really studying and researching all Soviet type training protocols, periodizations, annual periodizations, the whole entire thing. And every single thing that they did was centered around closed chain kinetic exercise. Now, the interesting thing when you looked at that model at that time was that in the U.S. uh, physical therapy system, one of the things that you would run across is that many times your insurance company would say, well, we allocate 24 physical therapy sessions and then all our research and all our dot, you know, uh, benchmarks and stuff is that you'll be recovered from that, from that injury. Um, and when the insurance would run out, the sessions would run out, whichever amount of sessions or time period the insurance co- company dictated, a majority of people, of course, they're not going to be able to afford the physical therapy out of their pocket so that they would stop their physical therapy. Possibly the therapist would say, try to do these exercises at home. Um, but we all know in the busy world we live in that sometimes that's not possible. So a majority of the <clears throat> U.S. model for ACL injuries, so let's say, During that time period or that allotment of sessions, most of what the therapist was able to accomplish was all through the isolation work, and they never were able to proceed. So look at it this way. Okay, we've uh, strengthened the joint. We've strengthened the muscles around the joint, but because our time limit's up, we haven't been able to integrate the proper movement patterns into being a functional human being walking properly, squatting properly, bending over properly. And we're now hoping that the individual progresses in that direction on their own. So, so the, the end part of it, if I'm getting it right, based on our system here, both insurance and, and of course our rehab has to align with people's ability to pay for it. We take them, we either take them to a certain degree and hope that the, the patient or the, the athlete would f- bring it home and finish it their way or duplicate what's being asked from 
or would they in some cases speed up their end and skip steps to get to a certain point? I mean, that sounds kind of crazy. No, for the most part, it would be they followed their specific protocol. And because of that, they would get the joint or the isolated area strong enough and healthy enough to then be part of the overall system in the body. But they weren't able to develop, let's say, the functional aspects of that individual. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, so then I, I, you know, I hear the story about this cross-country runner, and, and now I actually went over and met the Soviet physical therapist. I, I had questions galore. And uh, during this period of time, uh, a few years passed, and um, I went to work for uh, Plus One Fitness Clinics, in, in Manhattan, New York, started as a one studio operation. It was one of the first personal training studios in the United States. Uh, I got in probably right after the initial wave of development, you know, for their, their program and their facilities. From there, we expanded to One World's Financial Center in a more of a corporate setup. We developed uh, designed, developed, and implemented all the programs at the Waldorf Astoria, the New York Hilton, a lot of the brokerage houses that had their corporate fitness programs, we expanded into there. But while the company was expanding, I ended up managing the facility in Soho and also working as the assistant director of training. So we get on, you know... You get into an operation like that, and we had physical therapists and athletic trainers and personal trainers and movement specialists. I mean, it was a pretty advanced operation. Um, a couple of our physical therapists did all the uh, rehabs for Dr. Alchek, who at the time was the orthopedic surgeon for the New York Mets. So that's why when we had the conversation with Vinny that he does that for Dr. Ahmad, a lot of that you know clicked in my head of, as far as everything that he has to go through. Um, to help these young players. And um, myself as the assistant director of training and the director of training, and who, who was a great guy, extremely well-educated, but he's up against it because in many of these instances, let's say a person comes out of physical therapy because they had a, a disc problem in their back, lower back, lumbar area. Well, all the training protocols that we used were based upon what was allowable from the insurance companies. And, um, you know, even though people sign waivers and the whole thing, if, if someone comes in, there's going to be a liability issue if, all the, if an individual, let's say, has a minor back surgery uh, to clean up a disc and then goes through physical therapy you know, with your operation and then from th physical therapy wants to move into a ma maintenance training protocol so that they stay healthy. Um, and because they had successful physical therapy with you, they moved into the, the training program, very similar to the young ball players that Vinny spoke of. Well, if all of a sudden 
I take that guy over the squat rack, and I know because the closed chain kinetic exercise, this guy has to learn, and he's at the point that he needs to proceed with this. Well, if there is an issue, insurance companies and liabilities then are going to step in and say, well, according to our U.S. protocols, you know, you shouldn't be, this guy's back issue, he shouldn't be squatting. Um, so myself and the director of scouting, we'd have conversations back and forth and, and I totally understood where it was coming from because he had to protect the whole company and everybody to work there from the different liability, liability issues that might pop up. But I mean, there was times I started individuals that might've had, had a low back protocol with uh, wall sits. I learned from the Russian physical therapist, there's different variations, there's different range of motions, there's different things that can be done to progress a person up that, that functional ladder, so to speak. They don't necessarily have to squat, okay? There's, there's split squats, there's lunges, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do body weight, closed chain kinetic work to get to a point to where their body's moving together as a unit. And it's not all isolation type work. So I started moving in that direction more and more. And um, at the end of every year, Plus One Fitness would put on a national training seminar in Manhattan and bring in all different uh, speakers. Um, Just to name a few, we had Dr. William Kramer, who was the head of the National Strength and Conditioning Association at the time and the director of research uh, in the graduate studies at Penn State University for exercise physiology, their sports medicine department. We had uh, professors who had written all the current textbooks on exercise physiology and kinesiology from University of Georgia, Springfield College in Massachusetts, University of Florida. So it was quite an array of talent. We had Johnny Parker, who was the strength coach for the New York Giants under the Bill Parcells years, famous for, you know, taking a 260-pound Brad Benson left tackle out of Penn State and turning him into a 285-pound All-Pro. There's a lot of stories that of his success and the way he, he had done things. And an interesting one was I had the opportunity to meet what maybe some of our listeners remembered, Dr. Squat, Dr. Fred Hadfield, who by the time I met him, he was in his 60s. He was still the only person to have ever squatted 1,000 pounds. Now, it was an unofficial record because it wasn't in a competition. Dr. Squat had um, a PhD in exercise science, a couple other masters, I mean, probably more initials after his name that I could even remember. And he was, a, I might be a little off here, but he was probably like five, six, five, eight. But I mean, even in his sixties, this guy was put together. So at the end of the clinic, I used to present uh, each year on post rehabilitative and preventive exercises. Uh, one year I actually did a whole thing on uh preventive exercises, postural, uh, postural type movements for, uh, 
uh, age 60, 60 years old and up and different things. Um, so at the end of this weekend seminar, we would then host a, a dinner at some famous place in Manhattan that everybody who came out of town loved going to. And I can relate to this story where we're sitting on a big round table and uh, I excuse myself to use the bathroom. And uh, while I'm in the bathroom, there's a little bit of noise behind me. I turn around and here's Dr. Squat standing right next to me. He was very, very nice. He said, uh, son, I, I just have a question for you. Where, uh, where'd you learn your stuff? I said, oh, there's far too many places to even list, but you know, a lot of it on my own. A lot of it was research and studying. A lot of it was when I was a professional ball player and the people I met and different things. Um, you know, sometimes even trial and error. And he says, well, you're on the right path. Keep it up. But I want you to remember one thing. Power, training for power is a lifestyle. It's not an exercise. So the next time you're laying on a coat on the couch with the bowl of potatoes watching that NFL game on Sunday and you got to get up and get yourself a drink, you jump off that couch and you sprint into that kitchen and you get that drink to the best of your ability. That's power. And after our little, you know, bathroom scene, we went back to the tables and some of the conversation turned to power and the whole type thing. And as most everybody knows now, power development of the ability to create force over time. Um, so it's not only moving a weight or moving a resistance, it's moving it quickly. And a majority of all the type of things that are used nowadays to develop power is close chain kinetic exercise, even if it was turned into a, a plyometric, uh, plyometric box jump. So um, this is when I started really understanding and seeing the success and the importance of this, the close chain kinetic exercises. And that is why when uh, we moved ahead and here I am scouting uh, or a pitching coordinator and going into different places and seeing young guys that they can't hinge, they couldn't bend over and pick up a box. And yet coaches or instructors or strength coaches are having him do all this isolation work. And I would say to myself, where does all this isolation work for teaching these people throwing proper throwing mechanics and how to stay healthy and how to create force and control force? I just didn't see it. Um, and taking taking you back, I mean, I find it ironic that we had to we had to search to uh, Russian influence for flexibility in our in our in our medical systems and whatnot, um, as far as the training goes and whatnot. I, 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 but it, with the exercise itself, with young kids listening, we've all, we, we've talked about this on the show, uh, from, from way back mobility, early, early years, mobility. I mean, when we're younger, we can do wonderful things. Like you said, pick up boxes, but as we get older, those, those, uh, abilities diminish. Why? Well, one is, um, <sighs> You know, sometimes even you're now getting into societal issues. I mean, 
Not last, even taking it up last, time I, uh, last time I was in a furniture store, I, I didn't see any chairs that were built so low to the ground that you'd be in a in a squat position. Yeah. We do things to to make it easier, to make it more comfortable. Um you know, I used to tell a story to when I was coaching at Rockin Community College in New York. On a Saturday morning, we we come into practice. Let's say practice is scheduled for 10 a.m. And I go, guys, listen, uh, we're going to show up at 9 a.m. Because I promised the uh, woman in food services that we would help move all the sacks of the potatoes uh, into storage that were delivered yesterday. So they're 100-pound uh, sacks of potatoes. So I need, uh, and if you're considering that there's like, you know, 2022 kids on the junior college baseball team. So I need 10, 10 of you to volunteer and I'll help you move the sacks of potatoes. And the other 10, I want you to uh, do your tubing exercises, your rotator cuff work, your scap stability as a warm up to our throwing program today. Well, immediately, all 20 guys go over, maybe 18 guys go over to the rotator cuff warm-up exercise station. And I've got one or two guys that said, Coach, I'll help you with the potatoes. I was going to guess that. All right. Um, that gets into the area of, uh, you know, I've stated this many times. Society on a whole, I mean, we're getting less and less able to handle workload. Our affinity to do work, to do manual labor, has become um, quite diminished. Um, then you have those conversations when, when all of a sudden someone says, well, I understand the importance of pitch counts and they've been helpful in the development of this pitcher, but um, one, we haven't really reduced injuries that much. In fact, they're rising and uh, he can't get out of the fourth inning. Well, we've we've... We've diminished our ability to do work, to handle work, to handle workload. And it's it's a mental thing as well as a physical thing. So that little analogy I had with the with the young ball players, I think, fits it perfectly. And I think the same thing would happen nowadays, whatever group you'd be talking with. Um, they just don't they don't embrace work and understand um, you know, how to get it done. And the ironic part about it is the, the 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 exercises that you're trying to get them to perform or you want them to perform is really replicating work that yes. years ago we would do on we would do on our own picking up potatoes moving shoveling um, it's 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 quite ironic but yeah kids nowadays would build an app to figure out how to move those potatoes yeah yeah <laughs> and I mean it, you know as Vinny had stated last week. Not that it's not that it's necessarily human nature, but the way our body functions is that <clears throat> the body's going to attempt to find the path of least resistance. Uh, and sometimes it's a good thing, but a lot of times it might be a negative thing. The body's a survival mechanism. It's not going to continually, you know, we're not going to bang our head against the wall because when we stop banging our head against the wall, it doesn't hurt. It feels better, you know. Um, it's going to take the path of least resistance to try to accomplish. And 
that happens physically and it also happens mentally. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I was the guy in math class that, that, um, if you originally did the math problem and it would take you five minutes to work it out the long way, the way the teacher wanted you to do it and show your work on the board. And, uh, I would spend four minutes trying to figure out the quickest, easiest way to get it done. And then one minute on the actual problem, but it still took me four minutes. I mean, five minutes, just like if I had just worked it out, I was always looking for, because in my mind, I'm thinking, Hey, next time I come come across a problem similar, this is only going to take me one minute to, you know, to, to, to complete. I mean, we all do it. We we've done it, you know, I mean, just look at, it's a funny thing, but just look at when you work on your uh, computer on a day-to-day basis. So you know where all your documents are. They're in the different folders. Uh, a lot of this folder system was created by when Apple computers first came out and then people slowly started adapting the whole, the whole similar process. But there's a way that you can put a shortcut on your desktop screen. And then that shortcut would take you to the work or take you to the application or take you. Whereas before we knew anything about shortcuts, we just clicked on the application folder and went to the application executive file and and clicked on it, you know. But, I mean, you see it in all, all walks of life. Um, you know, um, I mean, a lot of those ways improves how we get things done. You used to walk out in your backyard and turn on the turn on the sprinkler, move the hose around and turn on the sprinkler. Okay, and then from there you you bought an adapter for your uh, your outside faucet, and now your sprinkler was on a timer. Oh, you know what? I don't even have to move around the sprinkler now. I can f- I've we've invented a way that we can put a sprinkler system. You know, and. Uh, Five, six thousand dollars later, uh, I don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, uh, I mean, there's there's good things about that, but there's especially when it comes to training and uh, not taking any shortcuts. There's some bad things. Um, one of the things that you know, okay, we know close chain kinetic exercises, squat variations, deadlift variations, press and pull variations in the standing position. Those are the basics. But um, the thing that I have to stress is the progression that's important in the young ball player. And many times that progression, you don't even have to go into, you know, 10 or 12, 10, 11, 12 year old little league group or anything like that to see their training. You can go to Olympic weightlifters, and many times the initial process of learning those complex movements is done with a closet dowel. It's done with a broomstick. It's done with a PVC pipe. It's about learning the proper movement pattern. Body weight, okay? Bend down and pick up a box. So body weight, can you hinge properly? Can you fold those hips so that it works correctly? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Those are the most important things to start. And then, because the repetitive nature of the exercise, very similar to the repetitive nature of playing baseball, are you within, Are you in the process? Are you feeling what you're doing? 
Have you created the feel so you can repeat what you're doing? And this is this is way before we even apply to resistance to any of these movements. Um, the other story I want to relate that has to do with this is that sometimes what we don't understand is, for example, your rotator cuff. So if you're doing your closed chain kinetic exercise, you're doing your compound movements, you're progressing in your strength development. And now the coach or yourself or the instructor decides that you should move on. So if we take the, pro- the progression of uh, develop the proper movement patterns, feel for repeating those movement patterns, c- control of the force that's created, right? Um, you're looking at a process of movement, then closed chain exercise, then your stabilization, isolation exercises, then what I call your synergistic or assistant muscles. Something that has to be fully understood when it comes to the rotator cuff. When you're um, doing a pulling exercise, your rotator cuff is stabilizing the shoulder, so it's working. When you're doing a pushing exercise, the rotator cuff is stabilizing the shoulder, so it's being used. When you're doing a deadlift or a variation of deadlift, the rotator cuff is stabilizing the shoulder. Almost every movement you do with a resistance in your hand, shoot, you can even include a, a back squat or a front squat. Shoulders has to be stabilizing in order to keep the bar in the proper position. So every one of the closed chain exercises that you do, your rotator cuff is going to be worked. Okay? That's workload. That's the volume of activity. For every squat, long jump, plyometric box jump, any of the other thing, advanced exercises, as we progress there, your hip flexor is going to be used. Um, yes, the prime movers of extension and flexion in the leg. Well, they're synergistic muscles like your soleus, similar to the hip flexor, that are used to stabilize the knee joint, um, your calf muscle. So think of the scenario where, let's say we've advanced our training protocol so that we're not doing cross-symmetry, scapular stabilization, rotator cuff exercises at nine years old when we haven't even learned how to squat or hinge or run properly, right? Even a skill like a a speed and agility movement or a a motor skill develop movement like a karaoke uh, or a side shuffle or run backwards. I mean, remember the story about uh, when the athletic trainers in junior hockey in Canada, Canada were polled And they said the difficult thing is when they first start working with some young teenagers, 50% of them could not run backwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, And that's important. I mean, just just kind of for our audience here, 
even walking backwards, that's very good for your knees. That's very good for your, uh, what's it, your tibialis in front. The, we don't work the front of our, uh, I guess the front of your calf or by your shin uh, as much. And if you, as you mentioned with the chair, which was an, an awesome analogy, um, we, we're, we're front loaded. We spend all of our day walking forward. So you have to be intentional about that development, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, it, I, I just had a flashback of, of, of when you said the chair. Uh, this has to be 20, 25 years ago. They found the Aborigine tribe in the central outback of Australia. All the scientists and, and uh, archaeologists and anthropologists, they had no idea that they even existed. And when they went in to study them, one of the things they found was there was no furniture. In a completely relaxed state, they would be sitting in a deep squat. When they were eating, they'd be sitting in a deep squat. Uh, the only time they weren't sitting in a deep squat was when they were sleeping or when they were up and active. Uh, and that simple movement, that's, uh, I mean, all those, all those body parts you talked about from your toes to your Achilles, to your calves, to your, to your hip flexors. I mean, those are all engaged when you're doing that. Yes. Crazy thing is, is after they researched them thoroughly, they found out that there was no hip disease. There was no arthritis all the different hip conditions that we see in, in modern civilization. No spinal problems, no scapular stability issues. All of these things were developed and taken care of. Now, I guarantee you, not to be facetious, but I guarantee you that um, this group of individuals did not have any cross-symmetry exercise tubing or any advanced training technique except for the simple body weight deep squat. Um, I'm willing to go there and just for our audience sake, you and I are both doing this podcast in a deep squat right now, just for so we can put our. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sad to say after years of training, what, what they don't tell you when you're younger is that, um, you think that, well, I'm not playing hockey or football, so, you know, not really going to get injured. It's not the actual playing of the sport that takes years off your life and, and, and adds stresses. It's the training for those sports. You end up, it, it's, it's quite a fine balance of, you know, going for performance, which of course you have to do if you want to play at a high level. And then when you're my age, realizing that um, your knees don't work the way they used to. Uh, but it's a tough pill to swallow. It's all part of getting old. But it's one of the things that you didn't realize you signed on to when you were uh, 15 years old and doing all this stuff. Yeah. Um, That's why it's important that the messages that you're bringing about every week to the, to the families, you're giving them advanced uh, education, advanced knowledge, advanced experience. But we're also drawing on maybe mistakes that we made in the past, trying to help these, these individuals 
skip some steps, uh, find that hack that you were trying to find in that math problem. Um, so they can recognize their own patterns and, and become their own best coach. Yes. Yes. I mean, just think of the, that story about, um, we're talking some pretty good athletes with great lower body strength, young hockey players. I mean, we all know they have great lower body strength, but if you, if you need an example of, of uh, muscular development in a high level athlete that, that skates, you know, hockey players get all that equipment on just flashback to, your remembrance of photos of Eric Hyden, the speed skater, and the size of the thighs in his lower body development. Um, so even within that group, if those players have difficulty running backwards, it tells you that um, think of the whole population of young players that aren't even developed to that level. And yet we decide to do advanced level training techniques like rotator cuff muscle and scap stabilization and cross symmetry. The reason why I bring up the cross symmetry is because if in your exercise uh, protocols and prescription, you did some scap stabilization work because it was necessary to improve the movement pattern, the rhythm and timing of the scapula. That's one thing. But to attempt to do it in a dynamic movement pattern, coupled with you're in a standing position, that's a lot to encompass. That's a lot to get done for a young 10-year-old, 11-year-old. Especially when I cannot place more importance on this. Um, it's extremely important. Young players should be working on their primary movers. If we go back to, um, the conversations with Justin Orndorff and what he learned from the biography of Sandy Koufax, whereas Koufax said that the pitching delivery was about moving levers and putting levers in the proper position. And by levers in the human body, we're talking about our joints and our bones. And he had never heard it stated that way. He always thought about it as muscles. Um, so if our prime movers okay, are not trained properly so they can function as part of the whole, and move the levers in the proper position. And we skip those steps and move directly into the isolation type activities. We're never going to improve our functional strength or our functional movement patterns to move those levers and place them in the proper position. We're, we're you in as a, as a society and we, we touched on, on that, we are so consumed with immediate gratification. We're, we have this, I mean, there's such an inertia for immediate success in our world, albeit sports or otherwise, um, that we've placed that immediate gratification, and we'll, we'll call it winning in this case, over development, over progress, over process. Um, and that's why I think your message is so important each week. 
Yes. And, and the thing about this is that I'm not talking about um, a young pitcher going to the ballpark and he's scheduled to pitch that day. And he does some light tubing exercises to get the blood flowing as a warm-up. Oh, no. I'm talking about focusing on those movements as an exercise, thinking that we're going to get stronger in overall strength and uh, muscular endurance. Well, no. You, you use the compound closed-chain kinetic exercises to do that. Okay? Now, you're progressing into your late teen years. And now we're using scap stability, rotator cuff exercises, the, what used to go by the, the name of the Job exercises, uh, as part of your off-season training programs and stuff. I understand that, but you've progressed to that point. It's not like you're lacking in the other areas. So my goal for the younger populations is... Work on your overall functional, efficient movement patterns so that the levers are in the right place, okay? And then as we advance, we moved into some of these assistance type exercises, these isolation type exercises. And I'll give you an example of that. Going back to our, uh, our plus one dinners and annual seminar, one year the Speaker, one of the speakers was a uh, strength coach in the New York Giants, Johnny Parker. And because I knew that I was going to meet him, and he had a phenomenal reputation of, as I said, turning some undersized football players into uh, all pro athletes. And they were all around very good athletes. And I know the game of football has changed a little bit, you know, from then to now, but these guys were athletes. And um, because I knew I was going to meet him, I read his latest book and went over all the training protocols he used for the New York Giants. And the thing that hit me was that he used the split training schedule. And you, and you see this a lot in um, – in bodybuilding, um, where all of a sudden you train your pulling, uh, your pulling exercises on one day, the next day you do your pushing exercises. Um, you might be doing your, your squats and your deadlifts on another day, but the whole thing is it's, it's known as what used to be called the push pull circuit. Well, the craziest thing about that is that means that four days a week, those offensive linemen are using their rotator cuff. And then they're on the football field, and that ro rotator cuff is absorbing tremendous amount of force during practice, full contact drills, and in the games on the weekend. Because, you know, what do linemen do? Offensive linemen get their hands up, you know, to push, right? Or to absorb the force of that defensive lineman coming in. A lot of that movement all goes through the shoulder. So from scap stabilization to rotator cuff stabilization of the, of the humeral head. 
So I asked Johnny uh, in a respectful, polite manner, that once I got to know him a little bit, did he ever find that the rotator cuff was getting overtaxed during the course of the off season into the season and by the end of the season? And he looked at me and he said, uh, interesting you asked me that question. What, what made you think of that? I said, well, my background is in professional baseball. And uh, so I know the importance of the rotator cuff and throwing athletes and all. But, you know, offensive linemen, he says, you don't need to go any further. I just had to revamp my all of my training protocols based upon I just had four guys have off-season glenoid labrum surgery for their shoulders because the humeral head, the pounding was just driving it right out the back, right out the posterior. And I said, interesting. I said, because you're doing all that close chain kinetic exercise to become powerful football players, that rotator cuff is being used. So even when we advance into into training techniques where we're later teenage, young 20s, playing college ball. We have to understand the workload of these stabilized, what I call assistant muscles, because they're being overtaxed in, in even our day-to-day activity. So, for example, if, uh, if I had a pitcher, and, and let's say he was on a, he was pro balling. He was on a five-day rotation, pitched every fifth day. Well, if he threw if he threw a game and pitched deep into the game, and it was a stressful outing, I know the workload and the intensity was rather high. Well, I'm going to monitor and reduce maybe parts of his throwing program, you know, over the course of the next five days. I'm going to lessen the workload of his rotator cuff or scapular stabilization exercises. He might not do as many compound closed chain kinetic exercises with the strength coach. Uh, his bullpen might be reduced by 10 to 15 pitches, his in-between start bullpen. Not necessarily all of that at once, but we have to start comprehending what the workload is. So here's the thing. We get back to that little league scene where you walk in. So these kids are running around playing baseball, right? Hopefully they're using their prime movers because they learn to move properly. And then, you know, maybe they're playing a little basketball on the side. They're running around playing with their friends, you know, maybe because uh, uh, the parents can afford it and the parents want them to do and the child wants to do it. Maybe, maybe they're going to a little, uh, Activity class with some strength activities, even if it's body weight movements. All of those assistance exercises, the hip flexors, the rotator cuff, the scap stabilizers, they're all being used. And now, on top of that, we're doing cross-symmetry work in a dynamic fashion, meaning that we're moving and we're attempting to stabilize while we're moving. Yes, is it important? Because when you're pitching, you're on a mound and you're going downhill, so it's dynamic. Yes, it is. But we have to understand the workload. And sometimes people just don't really take that into consideration. Um, 
You you had a story at the end if, if it connects was regarding Lorenzo Cain. I'm kind of familiar in in a little bit with his. Uh, how would you say he was? Let's say he was uh, he he preserved his baseball self a lot longer than most kids do. Lorenzo Cain came to mind this week because I ran into a situation where a young a young ball player is coming back from injury. He just went through about nine or ten months of rehab, successful surgery, successful rehab. And the therapist released him into his into his throwing program. I've progressed with him. We've gone through his, you know, return to throwing um, throwing protocol. Much of it is based off of uh, all of Dr. Andrews' research and and suggestions. And he's reached a point where he's finally back up on the mound. Now, naturally, with a young ball player, he's finally back up on the mound, and now his next question is, you know, when can I pitch in a game? So they're always going to get ahead of themselves. They're competitive. You know, they want to they want to continually test the limits to get a feeling of gratification that they're moving in the proper direction. Completely understandable. One of the things that have to be, taken into consideration when you're working with them. So he comes to me the other day and he says, um, so this young ball player is a freshman in high school. And he says, um, uh, my, my coach spoke to me today. He went into a whole thing about, he uh, expects me to be completely dedicated to his program at school and uh, the player said well of course I am um, I don't know if I'm ready in my rehab to progress into games right now now he does play another position he's a very good athlete good hitter <clears throat> he's progressed to where you know, he can DH or play some positions, but just, you know, keep an eye on his throwing workload and stuff. And the coach tells him, that's no problem, but I'll oversee your throwing program. And, okay, I understand, but I have a, um, I have a private coach that's helping me with that. Doesn't express to him that it's me or any of this other stuff. Because I told them there's no need to do that because, you know, you don't want to get on anyone's bad side. You don't want to attempt to say to somebody that, uh, listen, even if it's in, even if the the coach feels it's inferred that, uh, you know, this guy's better than you or anything like that. We just want to, we just want to do what's best for the player and uh, create the least amount of conflict as possible. Because he's really dedicated that he wants to play on this team. So a couple things pop up. One, he's a freshman. It's not really important until the spring if he's able to pitch pitch or not or it increases throwing workload. The goal 
is if you look at the timetable from his injury, the start of the spring practice works right in in step with what his progression through his throwing protocols and his rehab will be. So it'll be all set, ready to go. I've worked all summer with him to get that as his mindset so that he's not continually in a rush. Like what I say, he's trying to hit the, you know, he's trying to hit a five run home run in one swing. Um, we've worked all summer to get his mentality disconnected from the radar gun and the immediate gratification and to be part of the process and to feel what he's doing. And we've made some pretty good advances in that area. And now the coach basically tells him, I expect you to be at every practice in the fall. And I'm going to oversee your throwing program. Well, Dr. So-and-so and my therapist, yes, I know them. I've overseen 50 or more of their throwing return to pitching throwing protocols. I'm going to take care of it. And you have to understand, it's basically my way or the highway. So when you think of that scenario, um, it brought to me the idea of like, you know, loyalty versus blind dedication. And why is a high school coach when this young man is a freshman coming off major surgery, the fall season doesn't even count. It's the spring. And he's a freshman. Does this young man want to make the varsity team as a freshman? Of course he does. Is the, What happens this year as a freshman, is it going to affect where he is when he's a senior, uh, the only way it's going to affect him is it affects him negatively because he doesn't do the proper things now uh, and create the proper foundation and rec- and recuperate from what he needs to recuperate from 100%. So we're immediately telling him he has to be dedicated to the program. He has to listen to what I, if I'm being the coach here, he has to listen to what I say I know all of this stuff. I know how to take you back. I know, I know. Even if it's 100% correct, and this individual is completely competent um, to do all of this, I did a little research. He has a track record of a lot of pitchers under his tutelage ending up injured. So the young player already knew that before I knew it. So it's not really good for his mental or his psyche or his progression to return to health, to be placed with in the constraints of that environment. Um, So now a 14 year old has to go to these practices, attempt to filter out, you know, the good or the bad for him attempt to moderate workload and volume and intensity levels, even though he's not good at it. And we've just kind of made some inroads in having him improve in that area in a competitive environment where he feels that what he does in the fall 
is going to be the basis of if he makes the team in the spring. Yeah. Unfortunately, what you're describing is far too common nowadays. I wish it was the exception to the rule, but, uh, and I don't have an answer for you or the audience in regards to it, other than to say that there's massive ego and a little insecurity. And I say a little, uh, a little sarcastically. So, right. right. But you know, you know what, Dave, um, and I know, you know, we're not in the business of making assumptions that assumptions lead us probably into a bunch of dead ends and mistakes. But even if we were going to give the benefit of the doubt that everybody's trying to do the best they can and everybody has the player, the player's goals and the player's health come first it still creates a difficult environment in which this young guy's trying to come back from a major surgery. Oh, yeah. At the age of 14, he's already being put. We always caution people about not putting their kids. Don't train your kids like adults when they're kids. Right. What this kid's going through is also an adult situation. They, we shouldn't force them to have to make social decisions or be put in social situations like this where that's an adult relationship that has to be developed. And this is a kid. And that, that, that's just as unfair and just as detrimental to their growth. Correct. And, uh, you know, you, you can say it's, uh, you know, winning over development or there's a lot of areas that you can dive into with this. Um, I, I'd put it in the, the same group. I'd associate it with, you know, like the 10-year-old travel team using the pitch comm system. It's about control. Um, and, and that's the sad part about it that we're running into on a daily basis. And again, even if everybody involved is attempting to do the best they can to help each individual, it's still about control. It's still about control. Um, the other part is we related the story of what a true professional is. A true professional is out, not out there trying to sell themselves. The true professionals are not out there trying to sell the way they do things. The true professionals are not out there attempting to sell a product. The true professional is using whatever tools in the toolbox to help the individual that they're attempting to help. Um, and that's what's, that's what's lacking in, in many of these instances. So that's what brought me to Lorenzo Kane. I, I, I've got two quick stories um, Lorenzo Cain, most of the audience probably knows Lorenzo Cain, but Lorenzo Cain is a World Series winner, an all-star, uh, a great teammate, an exceptional center fielder, and a really clutch baseball player hitter. He can he could hit for average in his career. He can give the occasional pop. He can steal bases. He can play defense. He can run the bases properly. He, he just is a fundamentally sound, exceptional major league baseball player. Um, he's probably retired a couple of years now. So Lorenzo Cain was originally drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers. It was during the time that I was working as the uh, pitching coordinator. And a group of 
coaches, instructors, and coordinators are up in the, uh, you know, when you go to these complexes and there's a, there's a quad, like four fields and right smack in the middle, home plates are all in the same direction and right smack in the middle is, uh, you know, a building and you can get up there and get a bird's eye view of all four fields and see what's going on and kind of direct the action. So we're up there and they're playing uh, one game. It's um, an inner squad scrimmage. It's the first or second day of uh, fall instructional league. And uh, Lorenzo had come off. He had signed. He played a half season of rookie ball. Held his own, did pretty good. And now he's instructional ball. And when you look out on the field, as we say, beauty is in the high uh, in the eye of the beholder. You look down on the field, and either way you want to look at it, Lorenzo Kane stood out. On one side, you could say, "Wow, that's a great athlete. Look at that body. He is a great athlete. He's got body control, and it's going to be awesome working with this guy." The other view could be, well, he's very limited in baseball skills. He's very limited in experience. Um, well, it's going to be a long, it's going to take a long time for seeing any improvement on this guy. Um, who scouted this guy? Why'd we draft this guy? And, and this is before you even have met the kid or you, just on an assessment that you see him go through uh, infield, outfield, and he's playing right field. So the interesting thing that happens is that 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 next spring, Lorenzo Kane keeps progressing, and he's having an awesome spring. Now remember something. He may have only played baseball his senior year of high school. He then went to a junior college for a year and was drafted. So this is a guy with very limited baseball experience. So, of course, his skill level is going to be far less. One of the things that you see with travel ball is you, you can see some pretty good teams that their skill level is outstanding. But that's all they focused on during their, their, their young career. You know, close chain kinetic exercises, movement patterns, doing things efficiently. No, no, that's not been part of the equation. So their overall athleticism isn't isn't that great. So in Lorenzo Kane, we had the opposite. We had a, a great athlete from playing other sports and doing different things, and now limited skill level. Well, Lorenzo Kane um, eventually makes it to the Florida State League high A ball, and he leads the league in hits. He has a great season. Now, at the start, was it a little rocky? At the start, did he doubt himself? At the start, did other people doubt him? Yeah, that all happened, okay? But somehow he got through it. And I'm going to correct. The year before, he led the um, South Atlantic League in hits. And he gets to the Florida State League, and he struggles at the start, and he goes through all the, the mental processes that you do when you struggle. Then he puts it together. Excuse me here. <clears throat> well, about three quarters of the way through the season, we have the Brewers have the bad luck that the uh, 
center fielder in AAA gets injured, but it's not supposed to be a long time. And the center fielder in AA gets injured, again, not supposed to be for a long time. So we had two outfielders that at the time were in A ball, and they weren't, weren't placed very high uh, by some of the decision makers at, on the uh, prospect list in their rankings. So it was kind of looked at that these two players would be sent up. So Lorenzo Cain was sent to AAA. And in his career with the Brewers, he had only played right field. The other player, believe it or not, only had played left field. And there were people at the time that said he wasn't even a good outfielder that we should um, convert him to first base. And that ball player was Michael Brantley. And Michael Brantley gets sent up to double-A. Now, part of the reason that these guys were, were sent up was that, yeah, they might have to fill in at the start, but they weren't really going to get much playing time. They were just an insurance policy in case the, the two individuals that injured didn't come back quick, quick enough. And we didn't want to send up a guy ranked higher on the prospect list because they were they needed to play. Well, the funny thing happened in both cases. The AAA manager, um, who had a very successful career managing AAA for the Brewers at the time, they're battling for first place. Oh, they sent me this kid, Lorenzo Cain. Fine. Puts him in the starting lineup in center field. Proceeds in the first week to make two game-saving catches, holding his own at the plate, and now everybody's eyes are open. Holy mackerel, this guy's pretty good. Michael Brantley proceeds to just tear up double A, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're at the top of the prospect list. Okay? So look back at those two players. Uh, They come from two different backgrounds. Brantley's uh, dad was a big league hitting coach uh, for quite some time. So he came from a really structured, you know, baseball background, but he had played multiple sports, done all the other stuff. Lorenzo Cain, very limited in his baseball. And still, at the level when they were in their 20s, early 20s, they were viewed by a lot of people as non-prospects. And yet, both of them have gone on to have phenomenal Major League Baseball careers. Okay? So you look back to the story of this 14-year-old who was a freshman in high school, and now he has to make a decision of, um, you know, um, do I place myself in this environment because I want to be on the team this spring? And you're a freshman, you know, going out for the varsity team. And then there's one more story in closing that relates to this. Back in my day as the pitching coach for Rockland Community College, I worked with a close friend of mine who had played uh, CYO basketball for my dad, Dan Keeley. Uh, and then uh, the third base coach who ran the offense was Tom McNamara, currently a special assistant to the general manager for the Kansas City Royals. And uh, I was the pitching coach. I had limited time because I had the 
the training business plus one fitness at the time down in lower Manhattan. And I show up to the first uh, Saturday fall practice and there's a right-handed pitcher. He's about six, three, six, four, six, three, maybe, you know, good body, easily 190, 195 pounds as a freshman in college. And, uh, he had played at my old high school, North Rockland high school and, uh, Deals New York. He had played for a coach who was my coach in eighth grade when I first started pitching, John DiGirolamo. And this player, his senior in high school, went out for a team, was on the team, was a great teammate. He was on a team because a lot of his good friends were on the team and he wanted to play ball. He never pitched an inning. Never pitched an inning in varsity baseball. Came to me as a freshman. Had natural bowling ball heavy sink. Like a Brandon Woodruff type of really heavy sink. And I told him, I said, here's how we're going to progress. You're going to keep that heavy sinker in on the hands of right-handers. Every now and then I'm going to teach you a little slider. You're going to throw it away off the plate and we'll start working on a changeup. Freshman year of college, he's 13 junior college, all American division one junior college, all American gets drafted, comes back to school because we lost in, uh, uh, I don't know if we lost in the States New York State final. Uh, he comes back for his sophomore year. He's dedicated. He's putting in the work. We've, we're doing all the close chain kinetic exercises. He's progressing. He's improving his body control. His command starts coming around. He's thrown with the heavy sink. Uh, one afternoon, he threw a seven-inning, two-hit shutout on 59 pitches. He's completely bought into what I'm attempting to teach him. But the reason I brought him up is because he's first team all American as a sophomore gets drafted again. But during this period of time on the weekend, I brought him down to plus one fitness to introduce him to all the athletic trainers, movement specialists, personal trainers, physical therapists, massage therapists. And I brought him down just to say, Hey, listen, when I was in school, you thought you would come out to be a lawyer, go to law school or go to medical school to be a doctor or be a businessman or a teacher. You know, um, you didn't realize that there was all these areas that you could study and work in, in the medical field, in the exercise science field, exercise physiology, which was just starting to really become popular. So he doesn't, after he's drafted, he doesn't sign because he receives a full scholarship to Long Island University in Brooklyn, which had one of the leading physical therapy programs in the country. Goes to LIU, becomes the number one pitcher on their team, helps them have a successful year. He's drafted again while well, he's enrolled in the PT program, where if he stays there for, for uh, four years, he was going to, have the ability to complete the five-year program and come out with a master's in physical therapy. And it was all paid for. Goes back for a senior year, 
has another successful season, gets drafted, I believe at this time by the Twins, signs, goes away with his master's degree in his back pocket in physical therapy, and pitches up the high A ball with the Twins, then retires and becomes one of the top physical therapists uh, in his career in uh, the city of San Diego. Now, the reason I brought that story up is because he never pitched an inning in high school. And then he ended up getting drafted four different times. And he ended up being an All-American in junior college. All right. So a lot of things that we've talked about in the past relate to the story about this 14-year-old freshman in high school. It relates to 10-year-olds pitching three times on a weekend for their travel team. It relates to a lot of things. It relates to many times, Dave, you've brought up, you know, we're chasing that ring. Well, we, you know, we're all American. Who's all American? You know, Top Gun all American or we've got rings. Listen, that's all fine and dandy so that the player receives enjoyment and some gratification for putting in the work. Um, But when all of a sudden we start being part of the process where we feel that all the things we spoke of with Vinny Perez last week, to the conversations on close chain kinetic exercise and laying the foundation. And remember, close chain kinetic exercise, they are not easy. Not only is there a learning curve, but, I mean, it goes without saying, it's much more difficult to do a squat than it is to do a leg extension leg curl. It's much more difficult to do a deadlift than to do rotator cuff exercises. Um, so until we acquire the ability to do work and we dive into it and we understand the importance of it, um, it's a difficult situation. And yet, in closing, we just discussed three ball players who had limited, limited recognition when they were younger, limited opportunities to play when they were younger, and all three of them went on to have successful careers in their related you know, industries that they eventually worked in. I can't stress that point enough to all the parents and young coaches. No, I think it's uh, been a great episode as usual and great education piece for the parents and the kids and, and the coaches out there that may be placing undue pressure on some of these kids um, just because of the environment and the landscape of youth sports today and amateur sports. But, uh, Jim, thanks so much for, for a wonderful Peace today with uh, Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. This is episode 312 on the network, 51,000 plus. Thanks for your support. Keep keep plugging us. Give Jim five stars today. Make sure that we give him a great write-up underneath so we can battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball today. Let iHeart know they made the right choice here. Jim, thanks so much for a great show. Dave, thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to everybody next week.